We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by a couple of our regular commentators, those being Ross Feingold. Good evening, Gavin. And Brian Hugh. Good evening. Now, tonight we discuss some new Control UN members. Megabank being fined by US authorities for a second time. China Air Route's controversy continuing, only with a bit of retaliation from Taiwan. This time, two former heads of state who have been in the news this week and a rather large earthquake in a rather odd place. But we'll be going to begin with irrigation. Now, of course, this might be considered a rather dry topic, but lawmakers on Wednesday of this week voted to abolish the direct election of leaders of local irrigation associations. And that's, of course, a rather important aspect of ongoing moves by the government. Now, the posts will be filled by appointment from 2020 under the amended Act of Irrigation Association Organisations. Yeah, I told you it was going to be a bit dry, but we're going to continue anyway. Now, four-year terms for the heads of 15 irrigation associations are scheduled to end in April the 30th, but they will instead continue to serve two more years until September of 2020. And from then on, the positions will be filled by appointments made by the Council of Agriculture. Now, the irrigation association heads have been appointed by elections since 2002, and the government says the move is aimed at improving water supplies and efficiency within the agricultural sector and also to provide better services for farmers. However, the opposition KMT has slammed the move, saying that it's solely intended to help boost the government control and of the agencies and also describe it as a way to them to get votes and to get their people put in the top positions in the irrigation agencies. And ironically enough, the KMT have also described it as a step backwards in democracy. So, Ross, irrigation not often in the news. Well, it is important, as you indicated, for a number of reasons. One, it impacts the agricultural sector, and two, it impacts uh, some voters. Uh, the numbers, I think, are inflated as far as how many votes there are to get. Uh, but but there's still some voters out there. And, and of course, uh, both parties want to get these votes by saying, we're the bigger friend to agriculture. So it's very easy for the KMT to criticize what the DPP has done. This is basically another aspect of transitional justice. So these are legacy organizations that in the past, when Taiwan was a party state controlled by the Kuomintang. Uh, this was one more aspect uh, at a very local level by which the KMT was able to exercise its influence and, and uh, control patronage, for example. Uh, so there, there's some compelling reasons to do away with this. But whether or not this is the best method, uh, I think, didn't get enough conversation when the DPP enacted this law. So as an alternative, one could have just said, let's just do away with these associations altogether. But instead, uh, uh, to be fair to the KMT, they actually have some valid points that by keeping the organizations, but allowing the government to send in uh, the, the people who will be overseeing the organizations at, at the local level, that does give an enormous amount of authority to the government. Brian, obviously farmers and voting. Do you think farmers will change the way they vote because of this move? Um, that is one of the key points of it, which Ross has raised, that these 
groups are frequently seen as networks that support the KMT. Um, there's a perception among some farmers that even their fields will dry up if if the KMT is not in power and the DPP is in power. Uh, so this is a way in which the KMT has mobilized voters, and particularly with regards to local-level factionalism in, in uh, rural areas of Taiwan, this is quite crucial in the way the KMT has maintained power in the past. Um, the real question is whether the DPP will just kind of try to take over these networks or whether it will try to break them up. And the accusation that this is not democratic by because of the fact that this is actually uh, taking positions that were freely elected and having them become appointed by the government, that, that does raise some issues. But again, it's, it's a question of the DPP's broader efforts to break apart KMT clientelist networks, such as also seen with regards to infrastructure with the forward-looking infrastructure bill and so forth. But where does this end, Brian, with, with uh, the government uh, passing laws to take over uh, organizations, NGOs that were previously controlled or associated with the Guomindang? So we see it not just this week with the irrigation associations, but previously with the Women's Association, uh, the Red Cross, for example, was something that the DPP government went after in the first few months of, of, of its administration in 2016. Uh, so identifying what are nominally private organizations and saying now the government's going to come in and take it over. Uh, th- there are some risks there, and at some level it's it's not exactly democratic to do that. Uh, and frankly, does the government really have time, whether it's the current government or a future government, to be micromanaging all these associations? Again, maybe just do away with them entirely. But one could argue it, it, they're nationalizing it. Well, again, that, that would be doing away with it. But uh, instead, what has been done is we're doing away with a, a elected vote. We're keeping all these irrigation associations across Taiwan. And now we're just going to put in our own people to run it. Uh, so that is not nationalizing it. That's saying we're just changing the method by which these associations will be controlled. Um, it's one of those long-standing issues that there are all these institutions in Taiwan that still exist uh, in ostensibly post-authoritarian times, but historically have had ties with the KMT. And so pointing to signs of continued influence by the KMT, that is sometimes very difficult, and that does raise public controversy. Um, so, so I, do I, I don't know when, them, um, where this kind of ends. Uh, that's, that's kind of the issue. I mean, just I think these organizations, they have control or large influence over basically every stage of the farming process in terms of buying, selling, and so forth. And so I think it's very hard to actually just do with them away with them right away. So maybe it's something we'll have to depend on what exactly the DPP does when it is in control of these organizations. Will it move next to break, break them up entirely or do away with this process? Because right now as it is, it is quite ingrained into the farming process. And of course, the other question is, when the DPP are voted out of power, will the KMT (laughs) revert to the way it was before? Which is frequently... No, what they'll do, Gavin, and the risk with this law is they'll now have the right to appoint the leadership of these organizations. And the DPP, rightly so, will be unhappy when that occurs. I think a lot of NGO organizations that are actually, in reality, very closely tied to the government always have that issue. Just, you know, whenever the administration changes that, the direction of policy just changes entirely. And we had some more policy direction changes this week. In fact, we've got a lot of policy changes direction here to go through today. But another one that happened on Thursday of this week was when lawmakers approved a new tax reform bill that increases four types of tax deductions. Now, I won't get into the nitty gritty because I personally don't understand it. And in fact, neither does Ross, but we won't tell him that. Anyway, the bill is expected to exempt nearly 50% of the workforce who earn less than 408,000 NT a year from actually paying tax. But of course, while this is a good thing for the individuals, the chambers of commerce here in Taiwan are rather, well, their irie has come out because they're saying by taxing individuals less, you're taxing companies, many of whom are small and medium sized enterprises, which is the backbone of Taiwan, more money. 
Well, the, the, as you indicated, the corporate tax rates have been increased uh, for some corporate taxpayers. The people who earn uh, relatively modest amounts of money already didn't pay any tax. So to say that they're not going to pay any less tax on the little or no tax they already paid is, is a cosmetic action. It's, it's not a practical action. But guess what, Gavin? There's a local election coming up at the end of the year. And 13 months after that, there's a national election. So what do you do as a ruling party? You start cutting taxes for voters. It makes sense. And that's where the General Chamber of Commerce of the Republic of China stepped in yesterday and accused the government of pushing its tax reform bill through simply to please voters. Do you think it's to please voters, Brian, or do you think um, that's, it's a that's bigger, not, bigger aim here? That's, that's not incorrect. I mean, in the short term, it is good to please voters. This will not correct the budget deficit and so forth uh, going forward into the future. And so a lot of these longer-term issues still continue to face Taiwan. I think particularly just... Uh, if you do increase taxes on corporations or corporations perceive that taxes are increased, then what are the incentives to stay in Taiwan? And that also leads to some issues. Um, it's not a good – there's no easy solution. And the, another, the Chinese National Federation of Industries argued that the increase in business taxes could stop some companies from actually raising their salaries, which, of course, the government has been looking for, well, salary then, raises in the private sector. It's a valid point. If you're going to be paying more taxes as a corporation, where, where's the money to pay your employees more? Uh, so co- companies are sensitive to this move, and we see that w- with the very rapid reaction from the business associations. Frankly, I don't think this uh, proposed tax change received sufficient amount of public discussion before it was enacted. So it does come across as something that's uh, vote-seeking. Yes, lack of public discussion. We've heard that before, of course, with the <laughs> labor law reform bills. Well, it's, <laughs> what, it's what you do when you control when you have unified government. You control the executive branch and you control the legislative branch with a large majority. The DPP could pass whatever laws it wants, and it does not have to really negotiate it with the KMD. These were mostly the same business groups that were opposed to labor reforms last year and so wanted the current set of labor reforms to be passed. And so but Brian, we don't want to punish them with higher taxes because they, uh, they were against the labor reform. It, it's One goes, has nothing it goes, to do goes, with the other. Uh, I mean, it goes back to contention between the DPP government and negotiating with business groups. And so that's part of where all this comes from. It goes back to a rock, in, a, a rock in between a rock and a hard place. The chambers backed the changes to the labor laws, but they don't like the new tax system. That's right. Whereas the public love the new tax system, but there's a bit of a quandary about the new labour laws. As I believe, Ross, you were saying about the new tax system, the public is not going to get a grasp of this for some considerable time. Well, uh, with any tax changes, we see that in the United States recently, it does take a long time for uh, an individual taxpayer to fully appreciate uh, what the impact on their individual tax circumstances, because every individual's circumstance, uh, whether their wages or other uh, taxable investments, for example, uh, or how much their company withholds, right? So maybe here at ICRT, Gavin, they don't withhold enough, and then where they withhold too much, and you get a big refund. Uh, but uh, yes, the individuals are. It might take some time um, for them to realize or fully appreciate what the impact is, as well as corporations as well. And again, because there wasn't a lot of discussion, people are going to be surprised. Some people might be pleasantly surprised. Some people might have a nasty surprise, and some corporations might have a nasty surprise. And again, that's why the business associations are so upset. Yeah, that's right. Um, The issue is that just I think there's always a delayed effect reaction on a lot of major changes to taxation or labor laws and so forth. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that the public behaves in this way, though I think it is a little unfortunate that there's not more discussion of issues beforehand before they're voted on. Right. And more votes, of course. Yes, more votes in the LEAF RUN this week. Anyway, this was the nominations for the Control UN membership. Now, lawmakers approved 11 such nominations this week. Now, all the nominees were put forward by President 
President Tsai Ing-wen personally. And they will now fill the seats left open after former President Ma Ying-jeou was only able to get 18 of his 29 nominees approved in 2014. Yes, the Control UN, which is the government watchdog, hasn't been fully functioning for several years now. Now, the KMT and the People First Party both boycotted the vote in the legislature, arguing that the nominees were too politically partisan and what they said should be non-partisan posts. But of course, what really put the spanner in the works, we could say, was the appointment of Chen Shemeng as a member of the Control UN. Now, he served as Presidential Office Secretary General under President Chen Shui-bian and is very well known for his rather outspoken comments where he's called over the years for the, an end to the Control UN. So you've put someone in there who doesn't even want to work there. Well, not, not just uh, Mr. Chen, but other leaders of the DPP have had a consistent position to eliminate the control UN, which would require amending the Constitution. So it, it, it is a, a major uh, effort to actually do that, as the listeners would know. But yes, they, the DPP has had a consistent position uh, opposing the use of the control UN. And in fact, if we take a step further back in time from, from when what you outlined, Gavin, going back to 2014, under the Chen Shui-bian administration, President Chen, consistent with the DPP's view on the issue, actually did not appoint people because he took the view, I don't want this branch of government to actually operate because we do think it should be eliminated. So that was actually a more principled view. Now, maybe as it turned out, he just didn't want to be investigated because he was engaged in some <laughs> corruption. But that brings us back to Mr. Chen, Gavin, because he's been very outspoken and has received criticism from some some uh, 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 politicians on the Guomindang side in saying that he wants to revisit Chen Shui-bian's corruption once he gets in the control unit. And he wants to go after and investigate judges who he perceives as having only investigated the DPP corrupt politicians, but not investigating the Guomindang corrupt politicians. So are we using this uh, uh, appointment to engage in partisan work? That, and that is partly why the uh, Guomindang and the People's First Party boycotted the vote. Of course, government watchdogs globally could be accused <laughs> of this, Brian. So I, mean- I, think, I think that's absolutely right. Just in terms of uh, government oversight mechanisms, there are always political appointees, and that just happens in any context, anywhere, within whatever system. And so with the issues of the judicial system, which is proposed as a way to supersede the control rent's necessity, that's to say that the control rent is not necessary because the judiciary will provide oversight over the other branches of government. Well, in that case, then you just have you know judges that are appointed and are accused of being political appointees or just favoring one side over another. But and so Brian, I think we need to be careful of, 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 of doing what Mr. Chen has been guilty of in, in recent days. The role of the Control UN is it is not a judicial organ. It is not a prosecu- prosecutorial organ either. It does not investigate crimes as it, its mission. It investigates government actions. It reports on wrongdoing which is not necessarily criminal, could, could just be stupid policy decisions or poorly executed policy decisions, misuse of taxpayer money, inappropriate wasteful spending, etc. It, it is not meant to replace prosecutors or the courts. It, 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 what, what you said and what Mr. Chen has said seems to think we should be using the Control UN that way. And, and that's really not how the Control UN is supposed to operate. Uh, yes, there's some very good arguments that the, this this agency or this branch of government, more, more, more appropriately, is extraneous. Fair enough. 
but but it should not be used to supersede the role of the courts or the prosecutors, which have their own constitutionally enacted role. I mean, in theory, because it is a branch of government going back to the Republic of China's fivefold division of powers, which is fairly unique, um, it should be equal to any other government branch. But in reality, it is, of course, just an organ that issues recommendations or criticism policy. But of course, I think that always is inherently political. For example, the controller did actually criticize the Labor Standards Act, with which the Thai administration was pushing for. And so... That leads to some, a lot of questions about what the role of this, this institution is in the present. I mean, it is very unique when you do appoint literally people that want to abolish an institution to head it. But then that just points to, I think, a lot of the issues with Taiwanese politics in terms of just how the, the government system is very complicated and you have these odd divisions of power, even in the executive branch between the executive branch and the presidency and so forth. And how to streamline this is very difficult. But do you think it could ever be nonpartisan? I don't think so, because I just think that no oversight organ or you know no, no organ whatsoever is ever nonpartisan. There's always political appointees. The KMT blocked a lot of appointees that the DPP wanted to control rent in the past, and now the tables are turned, and so the, the, you, you have this situation now, and that's not surprising. I think that you see that all over the world. Brian, are you saying that there are not 11 or 15 individuals in Taiwan with the qualifications to serve on the control UN. You don't have to be a lawyer to serve on the control UN. It's not a prosecutorial I mean, judicial agency. Are you saying that that uh, 20 or so individuals just don't exist in Taiwan with sufficient skills who are not partisan, who have not engaged in partisan politics before? I think that would be really sad if that's where we are today in Taiwan. Well, I think that is the case, actually. I think that you know inherently people will slant towards one side of the political spectrum versus another. And basically, because governments you know, watch out for their political interests, no government is going to actually appoint somebody that is totally nonpartisan or has a history of behaving in a nonpartisan manner. You, know, you do want to uh, stack the deck with people that favor you, for lack of a better is that, word. Is that what the, the, the DPP ran on? Is that what Tsai Ing-wen uh, Basically, just everyone... Gov- that, every that gov- she's going to be a partisan? And, and that she, when she won the election, she said the opposite. Um, I mean, if you observe this in basically any political system, that's the case. Republican Party, Democratic Party in the U.S., for example, Supreme Court appointees, uh, you know, federal judge appointees, so forth. So I think that just that's the rules of the game in politics. Right, unfortunately, very, very quickly to wrap this topic up, if they did do away with the control UN, who and what body could become a government watchdog? Well, again, there is a role for prosecutorial and judicial uh, agencies when a crime has been committed. So if there's an allegation of a crime, that's the responsibility of prosecutors to investigate it. Uh, wrongdoing that doesn't necessarily rise to the level of criminality. That's the role of a legislative body to investigate as well, especially if it involves taxpayer money. Right, and there shall, we shall leave the control UN probably for several weeks, but I'm sure we'll be coming back here. Now, the US Federal Reserve Board fined Taiwan's mega international commercial bank $29 million for violating anti-money laundering laws this week. And the Fed has also ordered the bank to improve its anti-money laundering oversight and also its anti-money laundering controls. Now, of course, this is the second fine for mega bank since 2016 when it was fined by the New York brokerage i believe several what was it 180 million dollars for basically violating exactly the same laws so ross we've got the mega bank fined twice for violating anti-money laundering laws but of course it should be said the bank didn't actually launder any money it was just its control mechanisms were questioned by u.s authorities that's right it's control mechanisms are deficient they were deficient uh several years ago and they're still deficient there's absolutely no excuse for this at this point in time the management of mega was supposed to address this in the aftermath of the 2016 incident. There was large 
scale change in personnel, both at the working level as well as the board level. So throughout the chain of command, these things were supposed to have been addressed. The fact that there was no actual money laundering and it's just a breakdown in the controls or the controls are deficient is not an excuse, is evidenced by the action that the U.S. authorities have taken. $29 million is a significant fine. The previous fine of $180 million U.S. dollars is just tremendous. And you know, for a bank like Mega, which has a relatively modest operation in the United States, this, this is a huge loss. And let's keep in mind there's something significant. This bank is government controlled. So it does reflect poorly on the government as well. Now, the government here has said, rather the Ministry of Finance has said, that the bank has now stepped up its corporate governance compliance with laws and regulations, and it's also its prevention of money laundering. They said that last time, Gavin. I know, I'm not, I'm echoing it. I was going to grab the soundbite that I recorded two years ago for the same show and just put it in there, but I didn't, which was quite nice of me. However, what's different this time is the Financial Supervisory Commission here has said it will also conduct an examination of the three mega bank branches in the United States that have been fined and find out if they're adhering to U.S. banking standards. And if the Financial Supervisory Commission finds they're not, the bank could be fined here as well. Yeah, that's part of the issue because, again, it is government-owned. Um, I mean, seven of the 13 people on the board of directors are, are government appointees. Um, and these issues have been so long-standing that it does point to something systematic. There is a lot of backlash against Megabank with accusation that Megabank is sheltering people that have been laundering money. I mean, in 2016, a lot of the uh, charges faced by Megabank were related to the Panama Papers, for example. And Megabank and other banking institutions, which are controlled by the government, have been long accused of being uh, bastions of the KMT and in that way looking out for interests of the KMT, corporate interests and so forth. Um, so just untangling that web is, is very complicated and unfortunately just that it hasn't happened since 2016. Rather an expensive way to untangle a web, Ross. I mean, uh, and this- the sad thing here is uh, there are experts, uh, outside consultants, lawyers, uh, management consulting firms, investigations firms who, who can be engaged to provide advice on how to make a bank's anti-money laundering and know your customer, frequently called KYC, systems more robust. So what the problem with Mega is, it's almost a a farce at this point that uh, two years later, they still have not sufficiently addressed these issues to the satisfaction of regulators in the U.S. Wasn't that one of the points that Mega Bank came up in 2016? They said, we're now going to employ local people being local U.S. people to fill the positions needed because apparently Megabank didn't have people with sufficient knowledge. Well, that was one of the requirements of the order from the New York state regulators in 2016 was to address shortcomings in in the staffing of relevant positions. Uh, There were people who were what what they call in the financial industry dual hatting. So people who were on the business side were also Mm. uh, tasked with a control function, which is just a a bad management procedure in a financial institution. You should segregate uh, the people who do the business from the people who are supposed to check for money laundering. Otherwise, the business people do start to engage in money laundering. <laughs> uh, it, it sounds funny, but it's it's pretty basic. But but it is one way that uh, uh, personnel uh, who are eager to improve their business performance will say, "No, we don't need to fill that position. I'll handle it." Uh, and then they uh, engage in money laundering on behalf of or help their uh, clients engage in money laundering. Anyway, Gavin, the, you know, the key thing here again is this just long running problem with a failure to implement some pretty basic recommendations that were. Uh, ordered by the U.S. regulators back in 2016. 
Anyway, we'll have to take a short break right now, but we'll be right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. Now, of course, a couple of weeks ago, China decided to open an air route, or rather several air routes, close to the median line of the Taiwan Strait, that being the M503 route, which, well, it's rather close. Apparently, it's 4.2 nautical miles from the median line of the Taiwan Strait at its nearest point. This, of course, angered Taipei, who claimed and said, or alleged, or whatever you want to say, that this endangered flight safety. Now, this week, the Civil Aeronautics Administration here in Taiwan opted to delay approval of applications by two Chinese carriers to operate additional cross-strait flights during the Lunar New Year period, and they said that that was in protest against Beijing's decision to launch the new flight routes. Now, according to the civil aviation body, applications by China Eastern and Xiamen Air to fly in a total of 176 additional cross-strait flights during the Lunar New Year holiday period are now on hold, and apparently some 50,000 passengers could be affected as a result of that decision to delay the approval of the airline's applications. So obviously Taipei complained about the routes, Ross, and now they're saying, hang on a minute, maybe we won't give your airlines the right to fly to Taiwan. But the victim here is going to be Taiwanese who are based in China and need to come home to Taiwan to spend the Lunar New Year holiday. So if you have 50,000 less seats, that means ticket prices are going to increase and some people won't even be able to get a seat because there is insufficient capacity. Uh, Then estimates vary, but generally uh, most people believe that there are hundreds of thousands, potentially even more than a million. Uh, Some people even say two million Taiwanese living in China. Uh, A lot of them want to come home for the Lunar New Year. So I I, I fail to see how this policy decision by the Taiwan government uh, advances the interests of Taiwan. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it does get caught in political back and forth. Just sometimes I think the Taiwanese government is always looking for a way to retaliate against moves by China, but doesn't have a good way. How Um, is this retaliation, though? It's not going to hurt the two Chinese airlines. Well, it's like a security threat. But I mean, for example, you know, you see the... Uh, forcing, for example, the trade office of Nigeria to move out of Taipei because they did that with forcing the Taiwan represent, uh, you know, the Tico in in Nigeria to move out of their capital. Um, so you you just see kind of these moves, and sometimes they just come off as somewhat petty. But China is the person is the actor that unilaterally declares flight route, um, which is again viewed as a security threat. Comes at a time in which Chinese fighters are entering into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Uh, China settled its one aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Straits recently, so it is perceived as part of a modern pattern of but, aggression. But the Taiwan side has yet to provide any evidence, or maybe they did, and I didn't see it, Gavin. But as far as I know, they they haven't provided any evidence that this actually is dangerous for civilian airliners. It seems that the the issue for Taiwan, and very fairly, I, I, I agree, is that China didn't discuss this with Taiwan, and, and China continues to uh, ensure that Taiwan cannot participate in the international civil aviation organizations. But uh, there is there is yet to be any proof of, of danger to civilian aircraft simply by Chinese aircraft flying this new route. It, the issue for the Taiwan, again, fairly, is that they, the Chinese side – 
doesn't talk to them anymore on, on a government-to-government level, and Taiwan cannot participate in the international civil aviation organizations. Thus, there's no channel for Taiwan to issue a, a complaint within an international regulatory body. Uh, so Taiwan is angry. So they retaliate by making it difficult for Taiwanese to come back to Taiwan during Lunar New Year. Where, where, where's the logic in that? Also, um, there's, a, there's, a question, sorry, Brian, there's a question of money, of course, because, of course, China Eastern and Charmin Air flying an additional 176 cross-strait flights. It's money for the airports. Mm, that's right. Um, so there's there's also that issue and, you know, how companies react to that, particularly because of the fact that there's so much air traffic between Taiwan and China uh, that, that remains to be seen. But again, the issue is is that China declared this unilaterally. It's been an issue in the past. I mean, in 2015, this is all protest. Um, actually, you know, direct forms of direct action, you know, attempting to storm government buildings. That was during the Ma administration in a different mood because that was directly one year after the Sunfire Movement. But I think China was probably aware of that there was protest about this issue. And so this is intended as a form of political punishment to begin with. And of course, uh, it's happened before in the past where China has actually delayed applications by Taiwan airlines to fly extra flights to China during the Lunar New Year period. Well, obviously... Uh China is not going to let EVA or China Airlines make up for the flights uh, that have now been eliminated for the Chinese airlines. So why would they extend that benefit to the two airlines from Taiwan? So again, uh, I just see this as hurting Taiwan's interests. Uh, but may- maybe I'm missing something, Gavin, and there's some valid reasons why we should make it more difficult for Taiwanese to return home during the Lunar New Year, but I don't see it. Or maybe one way of putting it is that just, you know, when the two governments start going at it, then it's usually the everyday person that ends up losing because just sometimes you do have these changes within things that affect your life quite directly and it's not out of it's beyond your control because it's because a government actor decided something and the other government actor decided to respond in another way and that's that's how it ends up but but the government here is responding in a way that only hurts taiwanese so I think the responsibility could probably, you know, in a way that more leverages on the international community, for example. Because like I went back to it, that's a lot of money. 50,000 passengers could be affected. But how's the international community <laughs> going to be interested in this issue? So now Taiwanese can't return home uh, for Lunar New Year. Why would the international community care? This is um, an action by the Taiwan government that's going to make it more difficult for Taiwanese to return home. I mean, the original action was by China. So I think the idea is that if China is acting unilaterally and this is viewed as irresponsible in terms of uh, how the issue is framed in terms of violating sovereignty again and violating air safety standards, which are you know, internationally accepted, then that does you know provide a case for Taiwan to make China look bad on this issue. How is this making China look bad? It only makes the Taiwan government look bad by, by preventing Taiwanese from returning home. Uh, it depends on, you know, I think a lot of responses from the government could try to rise above China. It always is, you know... By hurting their own people? Brian, you uh, can, uh, help me uh, out here. What am I missing? If you can respond in a more, in a manner which you come off as the person that is, you know... Uh, playing by the rules of the game, then you do look better than the other side. So that's it. I still think the 50,000 passengers who might be affected might cost Taiwan quite a bit of money. My, my, my problem is the money that they would spend if they were allowed to return to Taiwan. That's my problem with that, anyway. Anyway, we'll move on from there. We'll move on to the topic of two former heads of state who made headline news this week. Firstly, it was the 30th anniversary of the death of Zhang Jingguo on January the 13th, of course. And speaking at a memorial event, KMT Chairman U Duni vowed to restore the island to its former glory under the late president by leading the KMT to victory in the November local elections and also to win back the presidency in 2020. Now, U also described the current DPP administration as a ruling party that deviated from the ways of the past. And he said that the KMT will bring back prosperity and wealth, build a society where young people's talents can 
can be seen and where elders are treated with respect. Now, talking of elders, of course, it was also former President Lee Donghui's birthday party this week. He was 95. And, of course, without Zhang Jingguo, we wouldn't have had Lee Donghui. Because, of course, he served as Zhang's vice president and then became president after Zhang died. Now, Lee took his birthday occasion to meet with former President Chen Shui-bian and when asked to make a comment, he simply said that he hoped to see people from all political parties here in Taiwan work out their differences to turn the island into what he called a great nation. Well, two rather contrasting comments there, Brian, about two rather different presidents. <laughs> it's quite funny, too, that the uh, the birthday of Li Donghui and the, the d- date that Jiang Jingguo died are literally two days apart. Ironic. But ironic in some way. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not surprising that KMT is still very attached to uh, Jiang Jingguo na- nationalism. Um, just they like to tout his economic achievements. And sometimes he's seen as a, a, a way to embrace the past of Taiwan, which is less controversial in the way of Chiang Kai-shek, because Chiang Kai-shek is usually blamed for the White Terror, although that did also occur under Jiang Jingguo, who was head of the secret police. Um, and in terms of Li's comments, you know, Li's is that it, I think you know it's it's hard to know what he's saying. It's uh, just the usual kind of phrasing, which pleases everybody but doesn't actually say a lot. Uh, he did meet with Chen Shui-bian, and he is still seen as the spiritual godfather of the Taiwan Solidarity Union. So, so you can do see these kind of you know maybe historical divergences in in these two birthdays coming. So uh, the bir- Li Donghui's birthday and Jiang Jingguo's date of death coming so close and. Yeah. yeah, I guess maybe Li Dunhui felt he had to meet with President Shen Shui-bian because, of course, neither of them were invited to <laughs> Zhang Jingguo's memorial. Well, certainly neither of them would want to attend. Um, mm. I think what we see, though, is is two aspects of Taiwan's politics that actually no longer really resonate with the voters, especially younger voters. So on the one hand, for the KMT to talk about Jiang Jingguo and his economic accomplishments, the KMT has tried that in past election cycles. It's not really a winning argument. Uh, it won't be a winning argument in the local elections at the end of this year or in the subsequent national elections in January 2020. You know, a winning argument would be mostly to focus on economics and say we'll bring stability and cross-strait relations, kind of the things that worked for Ma and Zhou in 2008 after two terms of Chen Shui-bian. Talking about Jiang Jingguo is just not a winner. On the other hand, you mentioned the Taiwan Solidarity Union. This also is not a, a, a place within Taiwan's politics that seems to resonate with voters anymore either. So they had their initial burst of popularity after Li Donghui's term ended. They had seats in the legislative UN. They've had some local uh, you know, city council uh, elected representatives as well. But generally speaking, this is not a party that I, that really offers anything to the voters. They don't really have economic policies, for example. We kind of know what their cross-strait views are, and you could get that from other politicians who actually have greater competencies. Uh, they haven't really put forth uh, people with great ability either, frankly, and that's why the voters re- have rejected them. So uh, Lee Dunghui, he's certainly well-respected, but I don't think there's an appetite for him to intervene in politics. So having a public meeting with Chen Shui-bian, I, I don't know if it was the best move for, for Lee Dunghui's legacy. I, I don't think he cares. He's 95. Let's give it, let's, it's his birthday and he's 95. He's he can do what he now. wants. If he wants to go and race a car around a track, he can go and do it.
There you go. Anyway, and before we go this evening, northern Taiwan was rocked by a magnitude 5.7 earthquake this Thursday. Now, while earthquakes are common here, this one's epicentre was in the Taipei district of Beitou, and not in the southeast or centre, as many of the larger earthquakes that strike Taiwan are usually recorded. And it was, in fact, the largest earthquake to hit the Beitou area since 1977. Now, the quake sparked concerns of volcanic activity in the Datuan Volcano Group, which is located in northern Taiwan. But experts were quick to dismiss this, saying that the quake was due to the subduction of the Philippine Sea Plate under the Eurasian Plate at their convergent boundary. That's what they said. I, that's what they said. I'm just saying what they said there. Now, they were quite quick to come out with that, but apparently not everyone, of course, was so fast because we have these telephone messages that pop up on your telephones these days that say, there's going to be an earthquake. There's an earthquake. This one appeared seven minutes late. Well, any emergency alert after an earthquake, Gavin, whether it's seven minutes or seven seconds, isn't very useful because the earthquake would have transpired already. Yeah, I think that's an inherent challenge of uh, emergency you know, systems. That It really just depends on the person on the other end being quick enough that to realize, oh, an earthquake's happening, we should send this out. And avoiding mishaps, for example, you know, clicking on the wrong button and sending the wrong message out, which is frequently an issue because I think a lot of uh, emergency systems have kind of outdated designs which are hard to navigate, old software and Yeah, so but forth. there's a difference between something intended <laughs> to be early warning and something exactly. that, that... Exactly. So that I think you know, this, if this process is, is automated, then that, that probably leads to more hope because you, know, you can theoretically just detect uh, you know, seismic activity then this thing reacts, and then it can just go on its own. You don't have to. You, have, you don't have to human element there. So there's some some issues there. And luckily, course, no damage. Would, yeah, and of course, the volcano. The volcano story, of course, where they went to check the volcano activity, volcanic activity rather. And of course, that sparked paranoia and headlines the next day. Well, uh, I don't know who'd want to actually go down inside a volcano to check out whether it's <laughs> active or not. It doesn't, doesn't seem like a job that, that you give to somebody you, you like and want them to you know, come back to work the next day. Be that as it, as it, as it may, uh, clearly disaster preparedness, and in all seriousness, disaster preparedness has been an ongoing problem in Taiwan as well across several governments, local level, central government level, KMT, DPP. Uh, we see this both with... Uh, preparing for hurricanes, which is something we do have early warning about because uh, there's several days between the time a hurricane will form or a typhoon, as we call it here, forms in the ocean and, and, and reaches Taiwan, uh, announcing whether or not work and school should be closed. And then the response to uh, damage, whether it's flooding, down trees, power cuts, etc. Uh, and we have seen that some Concerns with responses to earthquakes as well. So again, we can't predict earthquakes, but we can be prepared for what to do in an earthquake and how to respond afterwards. Uh, sometimes uh, the governments don't seem to get it right, again, whether at the local level or, or at the central government level. And, and there's much work to be done on, on that. Here's an interesting fact about volcanoes that came up this week due to this. Apparently, these experts said that although the epicentre was in the Beitou district, it occurred at a depth of 140 kilometres. Now, that was many times deeper than the 10 to 20 kilometres usually associated with volcano-related activity. Well, Gavin, is there any truth to the rumour that given that this occurred in Beitou, it was just simply a a hot springs owner who was digging too deep to find a source? (laughs) 
A new, yeah, I mean, he was putting his pipes in there illegally because he wanted a hot springs in his house. And, and That's a, a possibility, of and course. The plates it's very possible. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio by Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. And Brian Hugh. Good night. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.